Good morning. It's good to be back here with you guys and to be in this place, see a lot of familiar faces and also to see some faces I don't know and, and to extend a greeting to you as well. Um, I bring you greetings, uh, all of you from uh, West Tennessee and from my family who all wish that they could be here with us this morning. Um, and uh, it's, it's my great privilege to be here. Um, it's said that the job of a pastor is, to, or a preacher, I should say, is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So Steve must have been thinking that you're a little too comfortable and decided to afflict you with my preaching this morning. So here we are. Um, but I do want to invite you to open God's Word with me. Uh, we're going to look at First Peter chapter 2, the first 12 verses. First Peter 2 verses 1 to 12. So um, as you're turning there, I'll just mention a couple of things about why we're landing in the middle of Peter. Um, the, as many of the letters do, the first part of First Peter reaffirms the truth of the gospel. It reaffirms what it means for us to be identified as believers. And then the second part of the first chapter, then he begins to call on us as believers to live in accordance with that new identity that we've been given, the new orientation to the world and to ourselves and to one another. And so then in chapter 2, he begins to show us what, what does it mean for us to live together in that way? What does it mean for us to be identified not just individually as Christians, but as God's people made whole and one as the church? So that's where we are this morning in Peter And I'd ask you to look with me there, but before we open God's Word and read it together, let me pray. Gracious God and Father, thank you for your Word and for this time to open it together. Lord, we have come here this morning um, with different postures of heart and different orientations of mind. Some of us have come eagerly looking forward to being with your people. Some of us are not sure why we're here. Some of us have found ourselves um, wondering and wandering. And some of us have found ourselves on sure footing and are grateful for an opportunity to be affirmed in that. Or some of us have had difficult weeks, difficult months, difficult years. Some of us are casting about even, looking for some word of hope that you are near and that you care. Some of us have been struggling with sin or with feeling alone or with not knowing what direction our lives are taking us and whether that's a safe place to be. Lord, whatever our experiences, whatever the place that has Uh, that we've come from to this place this morning, what's true for all of us, Lord, is that we are a mess. We are in need of Your grace more than we even know. And what's true also is that You have that grace to give to us. And so we pray that whatever the experiences we've shared or that we've had alone, whatever the attitudes of our minds and readiness of our hearts now, that you would make us ready and that you would give us the eyes to see 
and open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. That you would unstop our ears and give us ears to hear what you would say to us as you speak to us. Renew our minds and give us understanding as we read your word together and as we hear it proclaimed to us. And Lord, give us the faith to believe and help us in our unbelief that we would see that what, what is here before us, what we open now, what we hear read and taught to us is not merely the words of men or the rambling of a, of a man standing in front of us or an ancient text that has no bearing on our lives, but Lord, it is in fact your word that you are present and speaking and you have something to say and this is your word of hope and grace to us. Would you do that for us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is God's word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that, it, by, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Thanks be to God for his word. Before we went to seminary, we lived in Roanoke, Virginia, and, um, and I ministered there in a small church as a youth minister, and we, we bought our first home there, uh, so we still think of it fondly because it was our first, but we also, there, there's many things about that home that we miss. It was, it was a, a 1928 arts and crafts, one and a half story bungalow, right? I, you can tell, I, I took great interest in this house, I even know all of those things about it. And one of the things that's true about that style of home is that 
it has this grand front porch. Huge, all the way across the front of the house, and probably 12 or 15 feet deep, plenty of room. We had rocking chairs out there, and Roanoke is a great place for front porch. The summers are milder. Uh, I can remember having lunch in mid-June, sitting out on the front porch. It was 80 degrees and breezy and just so pleasant. And uh, that porch um, gave, us a, gave us an opportunity. It gave us a, a, an introduction, if you will. Because when we would enjoy that porch, then we would see people walking by, and they would speak to us, and we could speak to them. And we could watch what was going on around us, and we could get to know people a little bit, and we could, uh, we could see that we weren't alone. Right? And I think about how different so much of culture is from 1928 when front porches were de rigueur for architecture, right, to now when more likely it's a deck in the backyard enclosed in a fence so that we have privacy, right? Or maybe even more, the advent of air conditioning has driven us all indoors, right? Um, and, and these are things that, changes that can begin to threaten that sense of connection, of community, of neighborliness. And that's a shame because we all need community, don't we? And we all are longing for community. And what we what we need in order to grow and in order to, to be known and to know and, and to be accepted and feel accepted and to, be, to accept others is a, a place where community is safe, where we can really know I can be there. I can be myself. I don't have to put on a facade. I don't have to wear a mask. We need that. We, we long for that. When you feel alone, don't you yearn for someone who would understand and who would listen without, without prejudice or judgment. Just listen. Don't you wonder who will help you if you need help? In our culture, then, that shift is not just something that happens in architecture. It's happened in so many ways. We've moved away from knowing people and from community, from having points of connections. And while technology has given us great opportunities in some ways, I, I've in, just delighted in the fact that over the last 13, 14 months since we moved away, I've been able to stay in touch with so many of you guys through Facebook or other technologies, and yet they can also lull us into a false sense of community, can't they? While this is heightened in so many ways in our day, it's not new to the world, y'all. The, the idea that community breaks down is something that Peter was addressing here in this word too. He, he wrote to them as strangers, as exiles, as outcasts, as people who were isolated. But what we see in Peter's word to us today is this. God is building his church into a community in order to bring blessing to the world. God is building his church into a community in order to bring blessing into the world. And so we see that as we just look through uh, this passage, first of all, in the first three verses, that spiritual maturity invariably leads us to community. 
That is to say, the consequence of spiritual growth will be an increase in community. And, and we see that in two kind of contrasting ways. First of all, in this list of sins, right? This is not new. We, if we've read our Bibles, we know that the apostles frequently are challenging us, challenging believers, challenging their, their readers, their listeners about sins that would be troublesome to us, that, that we need to know about, that we need to be warned about. But the nature of this particular list in First in Peter is often overlooked, and, and that's because these are things that we don't really think of as being the biggies, right? Um, and yet, it's a, it's a list of sins that's especially caustic to community. Let's look at that list again in verse 1. Malice. Put away malice, he says, which is an evil intention towards someone else. Deceit, which can be just outright lies, or it can be mere half-truths, or even sometimes it can be true words, but that are spoken in misleading ways, right? Hypocrisy, when you're pretending to be something that you're not. That's a word derived from the name of the playwright Hippocrates, which uh, was a guy who wrote plays for people to produce, to, to perform in masks, right? That's the idea behind hypocrisy. We're putting on a mask. We're, we're living a falseness. Envy, when you want something that someone else has. That's the idea that if I can't have it, I don't want them to either, right? Not, not just being jealous, but thinking, I don't want them to enjoy that if I can't myself. Slander, or what we could translate as defamation, which might include gossip and rumors. It might include inference or innuendo. It even could be coarse jokes at someone else's expense. All of that can be slander. Now, what's, what's true about all of these sins? What's the, the, the common thread through them all? It's that they're all relational. None of these can take place without someone else in the picture. Unlike all of the other lists of sins, uh, then these are uniquely relational sins. And even unlike some of the other relational sins, then these are inherently threatening to our church community. Um, because there are other relational sins, right? I mean, murder is a relational sin. Not a, it's not a happy relationship in the end, but it's a relational sin. Um, but murder doesn't create a communal threat by its own nature, Right? Even adultery, which obviously also is a relational sin, is not the kind of thing that the apostles are singling out and saying, this is going to divide and tear up your community. But what Peter is saying here is, these things, the things that we overlook, the hypocrisy and falseness, the rumors and the gossip, they divide your community and they devastate it. And that community cannot grow together. It cannot be healthy. It can't be real community the way that God intends community while those things are present. And so he urges us, the first thing that we must focus on in building or preserving or growing a loving community 
is making sure that these sins are rooted out and dealt with well. How does that happen? Well, that leads us to what comes next in verse 2 and 3. Maturity. As God matures us, then we long for purity with these things. We long for pure spiritual nourishment. We don't necessarily see this right off, but Peter's point is to show the contrast between these sins over here that are community-breaking sins and the maturity that we find in Christ. Pure shares the same root as the word deceit. So the deceit that we're to put aside in in verse 1 gives way to purity that we take up in verse 2. There's a contrast there. Spiritual nourishment and growth and maturity can't exist where there's sin that is destructive to the community of the church. Let me say that again because that's really important to hear. You can't grow spiritually if the community of church that you're involved in or not involved in is not a healthy one. Your spiritual growth is tied to the health of your spiritual community. So, rather than being divided by these community-breaking sins, Peter says, we must be nourished unto maturity. And the nourishment's found only in the community of God. And Peter's echoing Paul here from the words in Ephesians that, uh, that we heard read earlier, uh, that the, the whole of what we are given in the church, right, from our leadership and pastors and teachers down to the equipping that takes place of the saints and the unity that comes from that, all of that is for a purpose, that we might attain the full maturity of Christ, right? And no longer be tossed to and fro by waves of uh, windy, windy doctrine, right? Um, or uh, deceitful schemes or human craftiness, but that we would have discernment and that ultimately the goal of that would be that we'd speak the truth in love to one another and that we would all see ourselves as a body of a peace with one another. Basically, that we will not grow and stand strong in our faith apart from our involvement with each other, our dependence upon one another, our connection to and our participation in the church that is ours. A couple of guys who wrote a book called Total Church said this, uh, and I, I'm, I apologize that I didn't provide the quotes, a couple of quotes that I'm going to read to you in advance. I should have sent those to Cinda so that she could have printed them in here, I, I, and I apologize for that. But hopefully they're not so long that you won't be able to follow, or follow with me. This is what these guys wrote, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. They said, the church is not something additional or optional. It is at the very heart of God's purposes. Jesus came to create a people who would model what it means to live under his rule. It would be a glorious outpost of the kingdom of God, an embassy of heaven. This is where the world can see what it means to be truly human. Our identity as human beings is found in community, and our identity as Christians is found in Christ's new community. And our mission takes place through communities of light. Christianity is total church. And so what that means is that as we think back to the confession of sin that we, or rather, I'm sorry, the confession of faith that we read this morning, um, is that that idea that salvation happens ordinarily through the church is lived out in us, right? Our own salvation, right, which is not just when we 
were converted, but that ongoing work of growth and maturity and of encouragement and strengthening of our faith, that thing that is happening from the moment of conversion until glory, we believe that the Bible teaches happens primarily through the church and the reaching of others, which we're going to get to more in a few minutes, also happens primarily through the church. There's a growth together that has to happen for this to be healthy. When I was a kid, then we had this, this fence that went around our backyard. It was like an eight-foot-tall fence, and it was a pretty solid wooden fence. And there was this weird thing. I guess the fence had been there for a long time because there was this weird thing that had happened is that there was a tree growing on one side of the fence, and it was not a real big, thick tree, uh, but it had grown pretty tall. And then there was another one on almost exactly the other side of the fence. And as they had grown up straight, then eventually they had, they had grown together. So that above the fence, this was one tree, but at the root, they were two. And I think that's an interesting picture of Christians. Because perhaps in our root, and in our individual faith, right, our, our roots are not just in participation in something, but in our particular conversion, Right? And yet, we're stronger and healthier because we grow together with the rest of the church. There's a certain point at which we can't grow beyond that. Peter finishes verse 3 with this phrase, If you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that? Now, I know Desert Springs as a church. And and I know that if you've been around here for very long, you, you have probably tasted that. You've probably tasted that community, the goodness of the Lord in that. And I praise God with you for that. I want to encourage you as a church in that. I want you to know uh, I am blessed to have been a part of your community and blessed to continue to encourage people to be a part of your community. But I also continue to pray for you that those community-breaking sins, some of which... I think tend to be especially strong in, uh, in the, the Tucson area. That, the, that we would be protected from those as, as a community here at Desert Springs. I would ask you also, are you struggling with the lure of the myth of part-time community? You know what I mean. Life is busy. It's so easy to say, you know, I would go to that thing, but I've got, I've got this other thing tomorrow, and so I'll go to the next church thing, right? Or, you know, tomorrow's going to be a, bit, a full day, so even though there's that dedication tonight, man, man, maybe I'll wait. Maybe I won't, right? No, no, no. Please, hear this. Community is a full-time thing. It's not a part-time work. It's part of your, it's who, part of your identity. And part of your identity means that you make priorities for it. And sometimes that may mean prioritizing other things lower than the, the world would tell us they ought to be. Whether that's work on Sundays, right? Or whether that's um, other, other things altogether. We have to be careful that we recognize that community is not just a, just a, 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 a compartment of our world. It is our world. The other thing I would ask, kind of in thinking about that first section, is 
Where are those sins keeping this congregation from maturity, from love and fullness as a community? I'm not going to try to name things and roll that out for you. That might be a good thing to discuss in small groups or, or just to interact with one another. It would be a healthy conversation, though, wouldn't it, to say, hey, what do you think are the things that are keeping us from growing as a church in terms of the sins that are present in us? And does Peter have anything to say to that? A huge part of our life together is that we seek together the nourishment of pure spiritual milk so that we grow into maturity because maturity leads to community. And that takes us to this next section in verses 4 to 8. Because what is the source of that pure spiritual milk? Peter says it's a stone, right? And that like Jesus, we are stones. Not that we're stoned, right? Medical marijuana aside, right? Uh, We're not necessarily called to be stoners. I remember in seminary, uh, a pastor said that he was teaching a Bible study to some young, younger college folks, and they got to Acts chapter 7, and it talked about how Stephen was stoned. And these guys were thinking, I, we didn't know that the Bible was such a relevant thing. <laughs> that's, that's not what I mean. Like Jesus, we are stones, right? Now, this might be some kind of a private joke of God's with Peter, because, because Peter, as a name, means rock. Right? Uh, Peter was really Simon, son of John, right? But Jesus gave him the nickname Rock, right? Rock Johnson, right? So this might be kind of an inside joke between Peter and Jesus, that he's throwing the stones label back at Jesus, and, but he's also counting himself among that. Um, but... It also might be kind of an inside joke because God seems to keep using stones for nourishment throughout the Bible, right? Remember Moses and the Israelites in Exodus um, that they had to go to a rock for the water that they needed in the desert. And now here, the New Testament people are saying, we must go to the stone for pure spiritual milk. Jesus is a stone. And in verse 4, we see what kind of stone he was. He was rejected like a mason rejecting a stone. Right? Now, that's not that hard to picture, is it? Um, that someone putting together a wall or a, or a structure, they, they, they're looking for a particular kind of stone, a particular shape of stone. And that was exactly true for the, uh, for the people in Jesus' day, too. When they thought Messiah, they were thinking a particular sh- shape and kind of thing. And Jesus didn't fit the bill for what they thought they were looking for. And so they, were reject- he, they rejected him. And yet, though he was rejected, verse 4 says, then later in verse 6 and 8, which is quoting from Psalm 118, which we, which we uh, uh, read earlier today, um, and also from Isaiah 28, it tells us that this rejected stone became the cornerstone. Now, what's the cornerstone for, right? Well, these days, the cornerstone is a monument, a marker of sorts, right? You guys might even have, have, have had something like that put in as we were renovating this building recently. 
something that stands for pointing us back to remember what, what has happened, right? Um, and it, it's possible that we might think about Jesus that way, but if we did, then we would actually be sort of shortchanging what's going on here in this text. Because we have the benefit of laser levels and uh, other kinds of technology to accomplish what Masons in Jesus' day had to use a very particular thing called a cornerstone for. If the cornerstone wasn't perfectly true and plumb and right, then the corners of the building weren't going to match up. Those walls were going to be divergent from one another, and there'd be big problems, right? Just a little bit off from a perfect 90-degree angle, and you get 40 feet down the way with the wall, and you've got a couple of feet gap, right? And so we have to see that Jesus is not... Jesus being a cornerstone is not just a a monument, not just an Ebenezer, if you will, of pointing us back to some faithfulness that he did, although there is that. More than that, he is what sets us right as our foundation. He is the true foundation for us. And that really matters as we move on through the rest of this passage because we see that not just is Jesus the cornerstone, but that we too are little stones and that we're being stacked up as a wall. And that the way that we take shape as a community is fundamentally vital on the fact that we're built on top of Jesus. The word Christian literally means little Christ. And so it's perfectly fitting that Peter would say, we too, like Jesus, are living stones, rejected by men and outcast and dismissed You know what that's like, don't you? And yet we participate, even as we participate in the rejection of Jesus, we also participate in Christ's use for us for building. In verse 8, we are being built up into a building, and not just any building, but a spiritual house, a temple of God, a place for holy priesthood. Now, what did the priesthood do? They offered prayers and sacrifices on behalf of the rest of the people. And we're described as a holy priesthood, a nation of priests, if you will. And therefore, part of what we're called to do is to be interceding for one another and for the rest, for the rest of the world, right? That's the context that we're being built up into a house for. I remember a number of years back, there was an earthquake in California, and there was a church that had just completed a building project. Uh, you guys can relate, right? Um, th- this church had poured millions of dollars into finishing this building, and then a week later, earthquake. And they all rush up there, of course, panicked to think, oh, was there, was there damage? Was there devastation? And e- as far as they could tell, everything seemed in place. It didn't seem like the thing had been touched at all. Pretty amazing. But they wanted to be thorough, so they called in some inspectors, And those guys got down to the basement, and they found problems. And that earthquake had brought great damage. And they said, you know, it doesn't look like this up here. But down there, it's not safe. And it's therefore, this whole place needs to be redone, needs to be brought to ruin. Y'all, without Jesus as the cornerstone, without a firm foundation then a church can look really great. 
but it's a place of damage and devastation. So we look at ourselves and we say, our foundation is true. Let's make sure, right, that our cornerstone always remains in place. And we must see ourselves for both what we are and what we're becoming. We're becoming a temple. We're being made into something for spiritual work, to be used by God for blessing others. Do you feel unworthy for that? I, I often feel unworthy for that. Um, and, I, and I often fear that, that as a rejected stone, right, that I'm just going to face that rejection all over again. But the hope that God offers through Peter is that Christ, who was rejected by men, has promised that you will not be rejected by him. On the other hand, some of us might feel overconfident about that. And we might ask, who, who of us is worthy to be part of that? And yet, in Jesus, we are made part of it, and we are made worthy to be part of that. So remember who you are, fellow stones. You're unworthy in yourselves, and yet you are prized by Christ as one who he is putting in his place to take part as, as you can, right? But so now what is the purpose of that temple that we're being built into? The, fi- the next four verses tell us we're chosen to be for the world. We're chosen for a purpose in verse 9. Like Israel, the church is the chosen people of God. Right? Um, chosen as Abraham was told to be a blessing. We read that from Genesis 12 this morning. That what Abraham was told is, look, here's why I'm making covenant with you, Abram. I will bless you that you may be a blessing. And that continues on throughout old, the Old Testament. And, you know, I, I think that there's kind of an interesting vision that God had for what he would do with Israel. Because Israel was sort of at a crossroads, right? I mean, that part of the Middle East is a trade route, major trade route for a land-based people. And eventually, all of the known nations would have had reason to come through there. And so everybody could have come in contact with these blessings that Abraham and his descendants were meant to be. And that God would therefore reach the world the whole world with a blessing of his people by having set them apart and said, you will be my people and I will bless you that you may be a blessing. But don't we tend to mess that kind of thing up? When we're, when we're told you're special and I'm setting you apart, then we think, well, I'm just going to keep my specialness to myself. And that's what Israel did, right? They became exclusive instead of a blessing. And that's why in Jeremiah we read of a new covenant where, okay, I'm going to change things up a little bit, God says. Here's how this is going to work. I'm going to send you, my church, into all the world to be that kind of blessing. Because we're called to be a nation of priests, ones who intercede for these others. Um, and when, when I'm sitting next to priests, in church, right? I don't need to intercede for them. Christ is interceding for them. Who do I need to be interceding for? 
the folks outside of the church, right? The folks that aren't these living stones yet, that they might become part of that. Because after all, we were just like them, right? We were not a people. As verse 10 says, once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, man, is that ever true, right? Do we live in a a merciless culture or what? Everything is open to scrutiny. And the least misstep is fodder for public disgrace. Merciless. Once we had not received mercy. But imagine a place where the, the masks can come off and the facade can fall down and where your missteps won't be mocked or held against you where you can be you and where I can be me and there will be those who will come and embrace me nevertheless as me. Doesn't that sound amazing? That's what Jesus is describing here through Peter, that he wants his church to be for us. A community where once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Once we were condemned in our sin, and now we have seen our sin be no longer. There was a church in my hometown that I saw be something like this. And um, there were people that would come to that church that uh, they, were, they were kind of the social outcasts, right? They were the ones that, they were, they were the awkward people and the ones that were needy and that... Uh, Frankly, as a college student, I thought, um, I think I won't answer the phone when he calls, right? Or let that one go to, let that one go to the answering machine or, or whatever, right? That, that's, that's how I was anyway. But these guys found acceptance at Shannon Baptist Church. And that, that kid who had kidney failure and smelled all the time and needed somebody to haul him to the doctor for dialysis three or four times a week, never had to ask because they came alongside him. And that girl who was overweight and awkwardly so, and, um, and we, we didn't know exactly what to make of her because, um, I mean, what do you do with somebody who's awkwardly anything, right? And she found acceptance there. And um, the, the uh, immigrant who was looking for a place uh, looking for people to help him find a job, and they helped him. And it blew me away. I n- I'd never seen anything like that before. Uh, and you guys, I see that same spirit here. There can be awkward people, and there can be needy people, and there can be dependent people, and there can be people that are helpless unto themselves, and they can be here in, a midst, in, uh, in your midst and know that they're accepted and know that they can be served. And I praise God for that part of community here at Desert Springs. And I want to encourage you about that too. Because we are now a people because we have received mercy. And that makes us merciful people to others. And it requires the church to have the kind of influence 
of uh, this kind of substantial selfless influence, right? In order to be able to draw others to the gospel. But I think you're seeing the fruit of that too, aren't you? Those of you who have been here for a little longer, have you noticed when ministry's happening, people are taking notice of that. People are watching. They're seeing you serve. They're seeing you bless this community. And it's reaching others. And it's drawing them in. And it's encouraging them. Because that unity that comes in that, com- that kind of community is effective to that. It's influential. It's powerful. Right? Kind of a, here's a kind of a weird illustration of that. But a, a writer named Alan Cozen wrote about the Beatles. Saying, in, more than 20 years, in the more than 20 years since the group disbanded, they each recorded prolifically. And each had his share of hits. And some of their songs, most notably Lennon's Imagine, have taken on lives of their own. But when the Beatles gave up their collective persona, they also gave up their pervasive influence. That's, in a weird way, kind of a picture of what God is doing in His church, isn't it? That the collective identity that we have is what makes the church so powerful. Me sharing in that with you, and you sharing in that with one another, It's nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with Steve. Not by ourselves. But it is to do with me and Steve and everybody else because we're in it together. And we're all members of the same body. And our lives before God and before the world then give us that kind of influence. This condition of spiritual purity that we see in verse 11. Abstaining from passions of the flesh, waging war against your soul, the apostles often use this term flesh to mean something that falls into the category of our sort of human nature, right? Fallenness or sin. Uh, it includes those things that are, that are sins of the body, sexual sins or whatever that, that we think of as flesh-like. But not, not just those. It's just kind of referring to, man, we're broken. I'm broken. You're broken. We're a mess. Now, I won't dig into that too much, but there again, that's another discussion for maybe for your, your uh, small groups, is to say, how, how is our brokenness real, right? What, what is broken about me that you need to know about? Maybe I haven't told you. Or how, how have these passions of my brokenness and the temptations that I face or that we face, how are they um, affecting my community? How are they bouncing off of you guys or how are y'all's sin bouncing off of one another? Because the fruit of spiritual purity is that those things eventually get put behind us. Not that we stop being us, but that the brokenness is healed, that the wounds are closed. That wholeness is found again. Peter doesn't spend a whole lot of time on abstentions from passion of the flesh. Um, and, and most people don't really notice what we don't do. And if they, if they do, then it doesn't necessarily distinguish you as being a Christian. For example, if you, if you don't lose your temper, right, then nobody's going to notice that so much as if you do. You know, if you don't have a, uh, you know, a wandering eye toward 
new toys or, or whatever, right? Then people aren't going to think of you as being someone who's discontent. But Peter says, let your conduct not only be restrained, right? Not, not just that, though, because any good legalist can be restrained. He says, let your conduct be honorable. Why? So that even when they might disagree with you, then those that, uh, those that see you have to acknowledge that you're different. They have to recognize that there's something different about you. Now, again, just really briefly, that, that verse gives way to like the next two and a half chapters in Peter and uh, about uh, letting your conduct be honorable among others. So there's a lot to see there. If you're looking for something devotional to do, it might be a good way to spend an afternoon or whatever, but, um, but I, won't, I won't really dig into that now, but just to kind of give you that heads up. Um, if I were doing a preaching series on this, it might be, okay, the next month's worth of sermons will be kind of unpacking that verse. So it's a, it's a rich verse. Um, but the, the idea is that the church here, this church, this local church, and our church universal that is real and true and our connection with other brothers, which Steve and I saw at Presbytery this week, but which you can see in all different kinds of ways. Uh, that is what we've been put here to be part of and to do and to be. What are we interceding for? Who are we working to serve? How are, how are we putting ourselves before others? Who is the recipient of our priesthood? Who does God intend to draw to himself through what they see in his church here? I, I would offer you this challenge. I know the, the fall, remind me what, it, what we call it, the fall, fall fest? Okay. Fall fest is coming up, right? And, and as Steve prayed, and wouldn't it be amazing if people outside of the church came to that too? Here's where I would offer you a direct application of First Peter today. Who would that be in your life? Who, who can you today begin to pray would, would be that, that you know that's not a part of this church, maybe they're not a part of any church, maybe they've been de-churched or maybe they're not believers? Who would that be? That's what Peter is challenging us for. Because on that porch in Roanoke, that so now several several years ago, um, we met all these neighbors and we got to know Sue, the depressed widow next door, and Mandy and Richard, the teenagers that whose parents were just absentee. They, I don't think we even ever saw their parents. Um, and George, the cynical agnostic across the street, and others and. Just the mere presence of the, of the porch gave way to a mini-community. It wasn't anything that had to do with me other than just being there. And that's what the church is. You don't have to bring something special other than just you into that community. Now, did that, that give us... I mean, it gave us an opportunity for kind of an unintentional ministry, but... What, did, what was the fruit of that? We, we don't know. Who knows? It could be that those teenagers next door started thinking that maybe there really was something to Jesus after all. Or that, that agnostic was, was softened a little bit in his cynicism. Who knows? We didn't really live there long enough to find out, but we trust that God was doing something there because God does stuff through community. And that's true here too. Maturity in Christ means that those things which devastate community are put away. 
And instead, we are nourished together in Christ and are built up together into the people and the temple that he has for us to be. And our purpose as that temple and as that people is to bless one another and to be a blessing to those outside of the church through intercession and through living for those that are around us because they are just as in need of mercy and of people as we are. So we seek that where it can be found, and that's here in the church. And we seek the nourishment of Christ instead of the malnourishing sins that break apart our community. And through that, things are changed. Let's pray that things would be changed. Father, we do ask for that. We ask that you would change our lives and change the lives of those that we know and might serve, uh, that, um, that you would protect us from those community-breaking sins and instead see us as a church unto greater uh, maturity and fullness of community, um, that you would build us up so that we might be a blessing to one another and we might be a blessing to those around us. And Lord, we do pray that there would be very practical ways that we would know how to live in accordance with your word today and that you would give us that. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.